Hello, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping family businesses thrive. My name is Ross Hayworth, and each week I will share insights and experiences to help you to navigate the complexities that can come from being in business with your family. You will also hear directly from family businesses who have been kind enough to share their own stories. As ever, I am grateful for the support of my good friends over at the Institute for Family Business. The IFB support family businesses in overcoming their challenges and help them build lasting legacies, something that we have a shared passion for. You can find out more about their work by heading over to ifb.org.uk. Right, let's get on with this week's show. Oh, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by Dr. Jim Rubman. Where in the world are you today, Jim? I'm in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Excellent. And today we're going to be talking about what makes for a successful um, transition for family businesses. I'll let Jim introduce himself fully in a moment, but he is a consultant to families of wealth and family businesses, but also advises consultants who also provide advice to family businesses. Um, I won't steal any more of your thunder, Jim, if you want to give our audience a sort of full introduction to who you are and the work that you do, that'd be great. Thanks, Russ. I spent the first half of my career in healthcare, uh, trained as a psychologist and neuropsychologist, and then transitioned in the late 1990s and 2000s to financial services. And so I have worked with individuals, couples, families, multi-generational families of wealth, which is what I only do now, and advisors ranging from financial planners all the way up to family offices. And so I had quite a bit of wonderful experience dealing with a lot of wonderful clients and families to be able to talk about that today with you. Fantastic. And the last time we were in the same place at the same time was in Denver about a year ago today, probably, or certainly a year ago this week. And the world has certainly changed a lot since then. How are things with you? You're safe and well and is life sort of returning to any form of normality? Well, we have a rough approximation of normality. My last major trip was in early March to a conference with some colleagues. In March, we wonder whether my wife actually got a few symptoms. We haven't been tested yet, either her or me. We might be asymptomatic. And then actually just last week, I had my first major business trip out to St. Louis, uh, venturing out into the world. And Mm -hmm. things are different and some things are the same so we're keeping our fingers crossed and obviously it's likely to have had a very big impact on the families that you and i um, both work with and we'll get into that um, a little bit more as the show progresses whilst we're on that theme have there been any sort of recurring themes that you've seen in the work that you're doing as a result of the current um, pandemic and, and the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment Absolutely, Russ. I think that a couple of themes have emerged. And I think we need to understand or or look at the fact that this has gone through several phases. If we were having this podcast back at the end of March, the tone would be very different. You know, we remember quite well the tremendous anxiety of who knows what was going to be, both from the virus and the markets tanking quite severely. 
and then we've had the recovery in the markets, but at least here in the U.S., who knows where we're having the waves of the different virus. But I think that that's important in that I think the first one to two months really shook people tremendously and the amount of stress and panic that was going on was, we need to remember how bad that was back then. And I was dealing with many families who were quite frantic, advisors who were feeling like we were back in 2008 again. Mm -hmm. People, you know, had to be separated from loved family members who were in the hospital and dying and you couldn't visit them. I mean, there was March and April. And then I think we've been in this phase where there's been some recovery and some adaptation. And I would say that's been helpful to see. And I think it's a reminder that people are maybe a little more resilient than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. We have adapted in some ways. Businesses have adapted. And I'm seeing a difference among those family enterprises who have continued and improved on that adaptation versus those who actually continue to struggle. Mm. And I think you, you make a brilliant point about the different phases that we have um, been through. And uh, I think in some ways, we, we also need to recognise the impact that the stress and anxiety might be having now we are starting to, to come out the other side in almost a sort of post-traumatic sense that, that the impact of that anxiety and stress and, and concern may well be shaping how we make decisions going forward, irrespective of the fact that we're now possibly feeling a bit more optimistic about things. Would, would that be a fair assessment? Well, it's funny. I think that's very true in a more isolated or, or pockets of concern way. And I think it's something that you and I can talk about maybe in this podcast is the difference between the older generation that have been through other disruptions before, other very significant times of difficulty, and the rising generation where this may be their first rodeo of disruption. And so I was actually just speaking with the head of a multifamily office yesterday and he was commenting that he's finding some of the younger staff and some of the younger people in client families are still quite upset. They, you know, staff don't want to come back into the office yet. Many younger people in enterprises, they're very, as you say, they're quite shaken mm. by what's going on because the last time, you know, we had, say, the Great Recession more than 10 years ago, they might have been teenagers and perhaps a bit oblivious to what was going on. Yeah. Now they're in their 20s and 30s. And this is the first time they've encountered something. And so I'm actually finding it interesting working with families of getting some crosstalk across generations where the younger people are looking to their elders who have had experience. And so they're talking about resilience. They're talking about coping. They're talking about adaptation and keeping, you know, your sea legs when the seas get rough. And so I find it's actually producing an interesting conversation where the younger generation is confronting things that they only heard about before, and now they've finally experienced it. Mm. And this is a, 
there's obviously similarities to 2008 in terms of the financial impact but this is also a different type of crisis isn't it because you've got the health element on one side where we're all being faced with our own sort of mortality that the virus is indiscriminate in in the sense of it doesn't um, target a particular sector and and it's not been caused by sort of a market event as in 2008 where there was sort of triggers and lead-ups to to what happened in in that sense and again I'm guessing that's adding to the complexity of how people are dealing with it because it is something that uh, certainly most people who would have gone through 2008 in that sort of phase of not really knowing what was was happening or, or being oblivious to it to be faced with that sort of double-edged side of it at, at the moment as well is, can be pretty traumatic. Well, it's interesting because I, I agree with you on one level that certainly it is sort of a double whammy right now. At the same time, you know, I am of a vintage that has lived through a variety of uh, market corrections and things going way back. And it is a little bit less either catastrophic or unique to me because, for example, many uh, market corrections or disruptions have had multiple uh, factors. One in particular was uh, September 11th, that we need to go back and remember that in late 2000 and then leading up to actually 2001, the markets were very much in turmoil. And then we had the terrorist attack. And so at that time, people experience the same thing, which is sort of, oh my God, not only are markets in turmoil, but the world is not safe. We've had a terrorist attack. Disruptions often come in multiples, more often than we may remember. Mm -hmm. And so, although this one certainly has its unique characteristics, I think still many things apply of how to cope in, in general. Yeah. And you can always say, can't you, this time's different because it is a unique set of circumstances but the, like you say the characteristics of disruption are are there through through history and ha have you seen uh, a sort of a shift in the way relationships are working within the families that you work with between that sort of senior generation and the next generation as a result of that because they there is this sort of first rodeo feel to it for them it, has it changed dynamics within families that you're working with Yes, it has. I think that some of the dynamics have changed actually in a couple of different directions, depending on the family. In some families that have established good governance, they were able to use their governance. They've had good, solid decision makers. You know, they did the hard work of creating a family council. Uh, they have a family assembly or mechanisms for family meetings and communicating through Zoom with extended family, those families have fared much better because they have drawn together and they have um, reached out and worked on the cohesion of the family and communication. Those families that put it off and procrastinated developing governance because they did not think it was central to wealth management. And I would add, and we can talk about sort of those wealth management firms who didn't necessarily emphasize or make available some of those services. Those families have been struggling much more. Uh -huh. uh, they've been splintered. 
the elder generation may be focusing on running the business or managing the wealth and not paying as much attention to the needs of the family. The younger people, as I said, some of them are very scared and they're not getting the kind of support. So anger is escalating. I'm seeing a real difference between families who have well-functioning governance and those who don't. There's a, a couple of points I'd like to dig a little deeper in on, on, on those points in particular. The, the first is we've mentioned resilience a few times already on um, the, the podcast. And I, I think it'd be interesting to define what we mean by resilience, because it's not necessarily just getting up in the morning and, and banging your chest and going, I'm going I'm going to go out and attack the day, is it? it it's, there's more to it than that. So, so can we just spend a couple of minutes sort of defining what we mean by resilience? Yes, I, I think it's uh, very good to delve a little deeper into that. Absolutely. So it, in the I families think, that you're working with, we, we, what are the characteristics they're showing that, that demonstrate this resilience? Well, it's funny because, you know, I've done a lot of uh, work and writing with uh, my wonderful colleague, Dennis Jaffe, who Mm -hmm. I believe you have interviewed also on this program. Yes. And Dennis and I actually just did an article that was published in the online version of Therawatt magazine, a wonderful, just outstanding magazine that's come out of the Middle East. And we talk about exactly that. What we talk about are the characteristics of resilience are essentially, you know, bouncing back and being able to recover from stress more quickly, with less damage, with better coping, more harmony in some ways. And we talk about many of the characteristics that define family enterprises who are resilient are good channels of communication the ability to talk about not just the facts, but the feelings, to listen to the feelings of the family members and allow them to get that out. And one really important characteristic, Russ, and that is patience, the the tendency to not have to jump to problem solving right away, to not be impulsive. I think that distinguishes families who are resilient from families that get into trouble around stress because they tend to blame, they tend to decide too quickly, or they get paralyzed. So I think families that have really good and thoughtful discussion process before decision-making really help define and, and create a resilient process. And this is where we're seeing the the overlap with what we're referring to as good governance. And the, I think if I'm understanding it correctly, it's not that the families with good governance are dealing with a different set of circumstances to those without good governance. It's just that they have the tools, forums and mechanisms to allow them to have the discussions that need to be had. Is, again, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Fair assessment. And it's funny because if we follow that thread a little further, it also involves other aspects that we often talk about, such as good leadership, the quality of leadership, and being able to foster good leaders who remain steady in tough times, 
convey steadiness, can inspire people to be coping uh, rather than very reactive. This is a time when you really see the quality of the leadership that you have in an enterprise. Good succession or transition planning where you get leadership that is fostering and bringing up the next generation of leaders is another characteristic. I was dealing with one client family enterprise not too long ago and they were talking about it, looking back on how they had begun to weather the first really difficult part. And the family leader made a great comment. He said, a crisis is a great time to test your strategy. The strategies and strategic planning that the family had been doing both on the enterprise side and on the family side during good times, or at least less stressful times, Mm -hmm. were being proven. They could see some of what they had thought ahead to. And I think that's one of the main lessons of the current environment, Russ, that you know, now family enterprises are finding out what areas have they done well in and where do they need to learn and to work on things for the future. And so as, as something to sort of add to the to-do list as, as we emerge from what we're seeing at the moment, would it be relevant for families to to be objective and, and have a look at how their governance processes or their sort of transition planning is has performed? Because I, I mentioned in, in previous episodes as well, businesses would tend to have a continuity plan in place of some description. Here's what we would do if there was a disruption of, I don't know, a power cut, for example, or our servers went down, whatever the, the scenario might be. I can't imagine too many would have had a global pandemic in their continuity plan. If they did, hats off to them for, for that foresight. But it's a, a potentially very sensible exercise to go, okay, this wasn't something that we expected either as a, a family or as an enterprise. Therefore, let's assess how we performed in this time so that we can learn from that in case something similar comes along in the future. I'm remembering a conference I went to a couple of years ago where they were interviewing a really good family enterprise and the rising generation was sitting on stage and being asked questions about the theme was becoming a learning family enterprise. And the idea i made reference a few minutes ago to the idea of families that blame versus families that support each other and yet are able to have hard conversations in exactly the way that you talk about and one of the young women uh, had a great comment she was talking about what happens around the family council when they discuss how well the enterprise is doing or the family or you know do people have ideas entrepreneurship, other sorts of things, and the respectful, open nature that they have to supporting people, while at the same time looking critically at ideas. And she said the most wonderful thing. She said, when we have these discussions, we know our ideas are not safe, but we are. And the idea that, you know, your ideas need to stand or fall on their own, but that it never becomes personal. There's always the harmony and love in the family and that it never turns into an attack. Mm -hmm. The ideas may be attacked, but never the person. 
And I think that's a real ingredient for a resilient family. Absolutely. And and that's not something necessarily where, you know, you can just click your fingers and, and get that. There might be some work needed in order to kind of create that environment where those discussions can, can have effect. And uh, I guess that again is where we link back to the, this label of good governance. It is making sure that you have the right tools and forums to be able to have those discussions. Again, it's starting that process of introducing governance is, is part of the learning experience to be able to give that type of feedback rather than saying, we now have a family council, we're safe. Exactly. And, you know, on a practical level, there are a couple components that really contribute to that. And in my work with families and colleagues in the industry, one is respectful communication, you know, blaming, labeling, attacking, making things personal sometimes requires not just a culture, but a code of conduct. There need to be good communication ground rules. Some families do those naturally, but many families make it explicit. And so some families in their governance take the time to create a good communication and behavior code of conduct which creates a safe and respectful environment. Uh, As I said before, leadership. Do the leaders in the family model that kind of communication where they always are respectful of the person and they're able to frame concerns over an idea in a clear way that is not blaming but uh, expresses the concern? So it starts from the top down as it does in any organization or family and determines how the culture is going to be for whether people are safe, even if their ideas uh, can be discussed. And so I think what we've done there is proved that there is a correlation between good governance and resilience and, and positive leadership. And, and that I, I don't think it's too strong a claim to, to say that we single-handedly have proved that that's the the case. But but are are we stretching it too far to say that the the presence of that good governance and those forums to have safe discussions also has a positive impact on what is typically referred to as succession planning? I know I'm as guilty as anybody for calling it succession planning, and yet I still have a little bit of a bugbear about it being called succession because it seems like a like a point in time where somebody's carted off and, and the next person's brought in. And I think your phrase is, is transition, isn't it? Where that, that seems much more um, effective. But is there a link between that good governance and an effective transition in your experience? There is a very strong link because good governance uh, tends to create transitions that go more smoothly and actually have a kind of resilience to them compared to necessary transitions in families or family enterprises that don't have the wraparound of good governance to facilitate them. I would say to add to what we're talking about here, I think, Russ, the idea of other aspects of the family come into play like good values. Very often a family that emphasizes its values as part of its culture, weaves its values into its governance, refers back to values as its guideposts while trying to navigate 
a transition or a disruption, because in many ways, a disruption is a kind of transition. We have seen that for families in the last five months. And so families that have values as their touchstone also demonstrate greater resilience. In fact, very often faith-based families with very strong values, in my experience, do a little bit better in managing situations like this, sometimes than secular families, because they have their strong faith to uh, keep them together, to, to draw them together, and to be a beacon with their values. So I think that's something else that we need to emphasize. And given the, again, the situation we find ourselves in and that the audience will find themselves in with the current pandemic, have you seen a slowing down or an acceleration or no change in the sort of discussions around that transition from, say, one generation to another? Because, as I mentioned earlier, we have sort of been faced with our mortality. The senior generation might be thinking, okay this is this is close to home and therefore we need to start thinking about this and uh, how's that sort of played out in the families that you've been working with that's a great question russ it really there's a lot there and i think it's often uh, not discussed enough right now i'm seeing multiple effects related to that particularly with the increasing longevity In today's world, people are living longer. You're getting more generations at the table longer. There are both good and bad aspects to that. For some families, the steadiness of the elder generation is seen as really helpful now and something that is providing uh, good aspects to the transition. At the same time, some of the elders are realizing they're tired. You know, they have been through many disruptions before. And for somebody, particularly, you know, people often very active well into their 70s and beyond, they may have thought that they had the energy to do this and they're discovering it's taking a lot more out of them than they thought. So I'm actually finding some families of elders who are realizing they need to be moving along with the transition sooner and more than they may have thought. They may. They may still have it up here in their heads of what to do, but the energy to do it, their fears around their health, it's just uh, stress is, is more difficult. And for some elders, actually, we know stress has a bigger cognitive impact. Right. At age 40, if you're under stress, you may be nervous and lose energy, but you're still thinking okay. At 75, it actually causes more difficulty with attention, cognitive energy, things like that. So I think for some elders, it's a wake-up call that they need to be really devoting the time to the transition. For the the rising generation who may be in their 40s and figuring they had a lot of time, this is also accelerating for them realizing they need to step up, that they need to either implement or accelerate the transition plan and the procrastination that we all are susceptible to. You have to put that aside and go ahead and work on the transition. So I think for families, it's having a big ripple effect. And one of the other 
um, slight bugbears I have around um, succession planning is, is it's got the word success within it. And it there seems to be a, a coupling of for a family business to be successful in, in inverted commas, there needs to be that succession. And again, what this current situation might be highlighting to people is either they're, they're being polarized in their view towards the family business, where they're thinking, this has been a potential threat now, I need to, to do whatever I can to help that to survive. Or actually, I don't want to be, the, the next few years are going to be really tough. I don't, this isn't my calling in life. This isn't where my purpose lies. And therefore, let's look at all the alternatives to a traditional succession from one generation to, to the other. And it seems to be that the majority of the framing of success around family businesses is that it passes from one generation to the other. Whereas a sale, for example, or bringing in a management team to run the business while the, the family own the enterprise and, and do their own thing could be just as good a measure of success as passing from one generation to the other. Is that, again, is that, is that a fair, fair assessment? It is a very fair assessment. And to expand on that, some families are finding that they had procrastinated the transition plan because they actually weren't quite sure if they had uh, the right person or enough people on the bench to call up for moving into top slots. I have seen two families in which they had some doubts about, but were, you know, continuing with the transition plan to the next generation. And the recent crisis has revealed that the person really could not handle the stress. And so they have been disappointed in some of the characteristics of the assumed next generation leader, and they have begun to revise the transition plan. That's a really hard thing for a family, particularly for the person designated for uh, the rising leadership. So there's been some disappointments, but Remember what I said, uh, the family leader said, a crisis is a great time to see how your strategy is doing. Well, this crisis has been a great time to see how are your next generation leaders doing? And some have risen to the occasion and shown their strength of character and their resilience. And others have been revealed as having some flaws. And the, the revelation of those flaws is, is not always reason to, to screw up the sort of transition plan and, and toss it away, but it is a, it's a way to sort of shine a light on perhaps what work needs to be done going forward to allow them to develop perhaps the characteristics, uh, if they're keen to do so, that they might need in, in leading the business forward. And this may also have been a wake-up call for them to go, okay, I thought I was ready. You know, I've been been banging on your door for years to say this is my time, and now I'm not so sure. Let let's kind of work together on this. Exactly, and I think you make a great point that for a lot of family enterprises that were focused on the technical managerial aspects of the transition, and were not paying so much attention to the emotional characteristics, the character of the person now that they're seeing that the person gets shaky under stress, maybe reactive, angry, or anxious, 
that they're realizing what people in organizational consulting and coaching know quite a bit, which is it actually is much more about the person than some of their skills. Skills you can remediate or teach, but if somebody really falls apart under stress and cannot provide the leadership that's needed, then you may need to rethink the plan. So it is, again, in good times, we all uh, think things are pretty good and we focus on what seems right in front of us. Those families that have really looked at it in an integrated way, understood the personal aspects of transition and devoted time to uh, development, leadership development with a good plan. Those families and their enterprises are seeing the benefit. Yeah, and as we mentioned earlier with regards to taking an objective view of how their governance has performed during this time of crisis, assessing and, and being objective about how the individuals has, have performed as well is an opportunity to, again, try to, if, if something has happened during this time period that, that people can look back and reflect and go, that's perhaps not as we had expected. It's the opportunity to alleviate, alleviate that partially or fully for future challenges. I think that brings us to something that is a recurring theme in family businesses, which is, is it family first or business first? And if you've got a situation where there's been a designated next generation leader for the transition, and during this crisis, they're revealing some difficulties, maybe significant difficulties, this now tests the quality of the current leadership to say, you know, do you turn a blind eye to that because it's family and, you know, we, we have to keep it within the family, maybe we'll figure it out later, or do the current leaders make some of the hard decisions for the business to say, we actually may need to rethink this and to get a leader, potentially a non-family leader, who is going to be a better leader for uh, the difficult times. Mm. So again, you know, can the family have those kinds of conversations or do they shy away from them? We touched on what good governance looks like and, and environment that that can create to have those um, discussions. Do, do you have examples where there have been really effective and successful transition plans that have been implemented by families because again there's often a misconception that it's an event not a process and it it can feel as if well a, a prime example is somebody's reached a retirement age again in, in inverted commas of 65 let's start thinking about how the we, we might be able to deal with this i'm guessing it's not as ideal as somebody who has perhaps taken a longer term view on what that transition process might look like Yes, actually, I can think of uh, one family situation that touches on some of what you are asking about here. And what's interesting, and we haven't really talked about yet, is the role of the family's advisors, the non-family advisors, for example, in the family office. In a situation that I'm familiar with, there has been a transition plan, but it was kind of going slow and the current family patriarch was doing well, relatively healthy at age 77. The next generation leader, who actually was the daughter and is the daughter in the family, 
was being patient and respectful. And so things were going kind of slowly. During this crisis in the last five months, the current family leader, the elder, was doing pretty well, but did show more shakiness, not to the degree of, you know, they clearly have dementia, but what I mentioned about some of the cognitive things, they were a little indecisive, just not as sharp as they normally were. And people in the family were concerned, but hesitant to talk about that. It was the executive in the family office who was brave enough, who had the courage to speak up and in uh, convening some meetings and as well, you know, having some conversations behind the scenes with the family leader who raised and said, you know, do we need to be accelerating and moving forward with the transition plan? Not because there's anything dire, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we need to be looking at what's going on. Uh And because of their excellent relationship with the family, because of their longstanding credibility, and they were a very solid voice of reason. And they, again, they did it in a really nice way. They had good EQ skills. The family took it seriously and said, you know, you're right. And so in, in recent days, they have begun to accelerate the leadership development for the daughter. They have begun to build in some safeguards and supports around the elder. Uh-huh. And they are realizing that they need to move this forward but it was the voice of the family office that was so important in making it happen. Yeah, uh, and you, you mentioned the, the EQ that was present to, to be able to do that in a way where it's treated with care rather than you know, pointing the finger and, and that blame culture that we mentioned earlier with it's your fault and you're not capable of doing this and et cetera. It, it takes quite a bit of sensitivity and tact you know, it's a, a lot of diplomacy to be in that position in the family office. But, you know, in, in Dennis Jaffe's uh, 100-Year Families Project and his book and in some other articles, he and I wrote about the resilient single-family office a couple of years ago. We talk about the generative alliance, the three, three legs of the stool of the elder generation, the rising generation, and the non-family advisors for the family and how all three of those need to be functioning really well. And the role of the family's advisors with lots of good EQ uh, is often not discussed enough. Mm. Yeah, and I know the audience for the podcast is made up of family businesses and their uh, advisors as well. So uh, I think there'll be lots of people nodding along as we're, we're talking now about the importance of working with with good advisors it it can be i I don't know the the position in in the states but but here in the uk it's a less developed market in terms of the sort of how well served family businesses are from a consultancy perspective it's still a relatively young um, field here i think you've it may be because you're a bigger country and i'm I'm being naive with the fact that 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 means there's more sort of awareness of of family business consultancy through actually you're uh, being very generous russ (laughs) (laughs) but i think families who who perhaps are looking at ways in which they can start these processes that we've spoken about today rather than necessarily if they don't feel they have somebody that they can turn to to help 
facilitate and nurture those conversations in the right way. That reaching out to uh, a family business advisor who is, is a specialist in this area would be a sensible um, step. I would say that because it's, it's what we do for a living, but but we do it for, for a reason. Well, it's funny because, you know, I support what you say very much. This is a transition planning. And in many ways, actually, you know, I often say we are in the transitions business. That's probably in one way or another behind most of the reasons that people reach out to a family business consultant. Some transition is either uh, planned or in process or stuck or you've come through a transition and there are residual problems. So many of the things that come up relate to transitions of one sort or another. One of the things I would say in the UK in particular is I think there's a growing number of really good family business consultants and throughout Europe uh, and the Middle East. And that brings us to the idea that we may have to talk about another day which is uh, the transitions that are recurring for family enterprises are becoming much more global and much more cross-cultural. That in many families, the changes, like I say, you know, not from father to son, but father to daughter, there are changes in family, uh, family structure, blended families. There are changes of, from one culture to a more blended culture that Dennis and I have talked about, the what we call the fourth culture. And so the complexity of transitions is ramping up. So there are more consultants now who are becoming aware of that and are able to facilitate that. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, I think is a, is a positive thing. Uh, and hopefully it will continue to the awareness of it will be con- continue to rise um, as a result of things like what we're talking about today. Yes. Just we, we've obviously covered quite a lot in, in today's show. It, it's, it's been fantastic to, to have you on. It, is it, are we able to, to succinctly conclude what we've spoken about today in a, in a sort of a takeaway for the audience in terms of the, the link to resilience and good governance and smooth transition or, or positive transition planning. Is there a way we can sum that up into a, a, a useful soundbite? <laughs> well, if anything, and, and especially with that last piece that we talked about, I think we could uh, distill it down to the fact that transition planning has many common elements that are very important to the family. You know, are you are you cultivating resilient leaders? Are you do you have a process that you are moving forward with and not getting distracted by the good times or the everyday functions? Families need to be making this a priority, and if they have not, to be able to you know pick that back up again. So there are many known, long-standing, common elements that uh, have surfaced again during this disruption, which is significant, but not maybe as unprecedented as we sometimes think. At the same time, the complexity of transition planning is going up. The increased longevity, the impact of of elders hanging around longer, the uh, increase in non-traditional and blended families, cross-cultural elements. Transitions uh, don't always look 
with the same as they used to 20 years ago. And so families need to embrace not only the common elements, but some of the extra complexity and different elements in the modern world and in the world that is yet to come. <laughs> Increased digital awareness uh, and preparedness for families. And so it, it behooves family enterprises to be really good at the basics, but also to be understanding that there are added complexities for the current transition that they need to be paying attention to. Absolutely. Brilliantly put. And I'm very grateful for um, your time today in coming on the show. Where can our audience find out more about you, Jim, and, and get in touch? I have a website, jamesgrubman.com. It's actually uh, undergoing some construction and hope to have a, a fresh one out within a couple of months. And I am always available on email at jim at jamesgrubman.com and happy to either provide some input myself or uh, I know a lot of people in the field and often provide some direction for families looking for things. So it may not actually necessarily be with me. I'm happy to point out other resources that are excellent resources that people can rely on. Fantastic. And we will put a link to all of that in the show notes. Um, and if you're watching this on YouTube, it will be in the comments below the video. But all that remains for me to say is um, thank you, Jim, for coming on and your excellent input. And I will take you up on that offer of discussing another show if, if you're happy with that. That would be wonderful. It's been a great conversation, Russ. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, and again, it's been a very good, detailed, uh, deep dive into some of the important issues that go on. So it's been very enjoyable. Great. And stay safe and we'll speak to you soon. You too. Take care. I hope you found this episode useful. If you have, then why not share it with your family and see what they think? I work with families just like yours to help them to better understand the complexities that can come with being a family in business. So whether you're just starting out or heading into the umpteenth generation, if you feel that I could help, check out fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ and get in touch. Until next time, take care.